Good evening and welcome to the Spirit and Life Bible Study. My name is Jonathan. Our reader is Cara tonight. And our topic is a God near at hand. Let me think how to set this up. Uh, a few weeks ago, we did a Bible study about the Heaven Project. And I've been thinking since then a lot about the uh, qualities of God, um, the uh, omnipresence, omniscience, omnipotence, the... Um, immensity, eternity, and so on. Just these astounding divine qualities when you really start to contemplate uh, who God is and what's going on. Uh, it's sort of overwhelming in a way. And yet, um, Scripture talks about that, but then it also gives us a very intimate picture of the Lord. And so I want to talk about stories in which individuals in the Bible go through this journey of contemplating God in a kind of astounding way and then coming back to something very close and, and intimate because I think there's kind of a natural sequence there. So that's what we're talking about. If you care to join us, shall we open with a prayer? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we thank you for gathering us together in your name. You are the one God of heaven and earth. You are the word made flesh. We pray for your presence among us. Enlighten our minds. Lift up our hearts, O Lord, that we may glimpse you and see what it is that you are doing. Amen. Amen. Very good to see everybody. Sending out love to those of you who are online and getting the audio and on the phone. And uh, let me describe, which I haven't done for a few weeks, what we're doing here. The Spirit and Life Bible Study. The Spirit and Life Bible Study looks at the Bible through a Swedenborgian lens, meaning in alignment with the teachings of Emanuel Swedenborg, born 1688, died 1772. The name Spirit and Life comes from Jesus himself, who says that his words are spirit and they are life, John 6:63. And we take spirit here to mean that his words have a spiritual and heavenly meaning and purpose and life to mean that his words are alive and aim to bring us to life by teaching us how we are to live if we wish to become spiritual and heavenly ourselves. And since Jesus is the word made flesh, as we read in John 1.14, what he says of his words, we take to apply to all the words of the Bible. They all teach who he is and how we can get from hell to heaven. Thank you, good friends. A God near at hand. A God near at hand. So that, that's a scriptural phrase. We'll actually look at it at the end of this evening, if all goes according to plan. Um, but that phrase kind of captures it because you have a God, that's the divine part, but then near at hand is the, is the closeness or the intimacy that we'll be looking at. I actually want to read these stories in reverse biblical order. Usually we start at the left and we go through to the right. I want to start at the right this time and work our way back. So let's go all the way to the New Testament, to the book of Revelation, all the way at the right, and we'll read the first of these kind of stories. It was really striking me. Um, yeah, so I'll, I'll just interrupt our reader and give thoughts now and then and so on. But uh, uh, Revelation chapter 1, and let's start at verse 10. This is sort of a a kickoff experience leading into the book of Revelation that John has when he's on the Isle of Patmos. And I want you to think as we read this, I'm actually thinking of three stages that go on, which is that first of all, 
just something out of the ordinary gets your attention. Like that's how this begins to my mind. Some, something causes you to sort of turn from, from where you were before. Uh, and then in time you're lifted up to you have this contemplation of the divine, but then it comes back down to this very concrete sort of moment. So let's see, let's start at verse 10 in Revelation chapter 1. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. Okay, this is the part that I think is, it's, un, you know, you're not always, you don't always hear a voice like a trumpet behind, and behind you is, is weird. Like, why wouldn't it be in front of you? You know, you, you hear, so it's just something kind of intriguing. It's weird, it's different than, than, than it usually is. And what does this trumpet-like voice say? <laughs> Saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And mm. what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Thank you. And let me uh, comment a little bit on two things in there. What we're really talking about, uh, the whole scope of what we're talking about is captured in that idea of I'm the alpha, that's the first letter of the Greek alphabet, and the omega, which is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. I, you know, and then he immediately follows that by saying the same thing another way, I'm the first and the last. So in terms of what we're talking about tonight, I would actually turn that vertically and say... Uh, it's important for us to rise up at some point to where we get a vision of who God is uh, and the differentness of God from us. Uh, we're not divine. We're not infinite. Uh, so we get lifted up and we contemplate this God who's very different than we are, uh, exists across all eternity is uh, in all time, apart from time, in all space, apart from space, um, knows everything that's going on. And so, you know, it's very different than our little limited, finite experience plodding on through this life. Um, but then the alphabet is also the omega. You know, it comes back down the first and, and the last. And uh, the, it also says it a little later in this chapter, the beginning and the end. And the other thing I wanted to mention was that uh, what is going on? How do you picture this? So John is on the Isle of Patmos. So where does he hear the voice? Behind him. It's behind him. And it's a voice. He hasn't seen anything. And the voice says, what you see, write in a book. Well, the voice is being weird. I'm not seeing anything right now. I'm only hearing something. What are you talking about? You know? And so they, there's something intriguing. Something doesn't quite make sense or, or whatever. This, this is the sort of stage one of it where it gets your attention. But it's definitely saying things about who is the Alpha and Omega, first and the last, okay, and what you see right in a book. And then uh, we get this vision. And how does John get into this mode? What, what happens here? Then I turn to see the voice that spoke with me. He turns. You see, there's a, there's a difference. There's a change uh, in his orientation, he, he, he was facing in a certain direction, but it's like, oh, I thought I was facing the right way, but apparently this whole thing is behind me. I'm supposed to look in a different direction. So he turns around 
to see, and what a great expression too, uh, to see the voice. <laughs> like he hears a voice, uh, like a trumpet, and is speaking, and he turns around to see the voice. And what does he see? And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Hmm. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His okay, and what type of figure is this? Let's keep on reading. Yep. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. Now that's not sort of normal, you know, that's unusual. Like, what is that? He sees his feet like brass. Go on. And his voice as the sound of many waters. That's, that's very strange, unusual. So this is a little bit surreal, isn't it? Like it's a human figure, um, but the feet are not like ordinary people's feet. Uh, in the way that they look, and the voice is not exactly like an ordinary voice, and keep going. He had in his right hand seven stars out of his mouth. That's not usual. Most people don't carry stars around with them in, in their hand. So it's kind of an awesome, I mean, who gets to have stars in their hand? You know, he's got seven stars in his hand. Uh, so what kind of person is this? Go on. And out here's a kicker. Out of his mouth went a sharp, two-edged sword. Yes, a romphaya, a Thracian battle sword with two edges on it is coming out of his mouth. This is not, you know, it's not like all of your friends have uh, Thracian battle swords sticking out of their mouths. Uh, it's a very unusual sort of, I, to me, awe-inspiring, kind of overwhelming divine figure. So you see what I'm talking about? It starts with this little teaser of this trumpet saying something, and then it goes to this, whoa, sort of, I don't want to use the expression shock and awe, that's been kind of ru ru ruined, but, um, but something along those lines, whatever that would be in English. And um, <laughs> uh, awesome sort of image. Go on. And his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. It's also interesting the sequence here because when he turns around, he doesn't even see a human figure. But like the first thing he describes is these candles. I turned around and saw candlesticks. That's interesting, isn't it? The lampstands, like uh, you don't even start. And then, oh, this final detail, his countenance is like the sun shining in its strength. So we had the hair, the clothes, like it sort of went from outside to in, didn't it? Like you got, you got clothing, you got the feet. You sort of work your way up. Then there's what's in his hand, his mouth. And then his whole face is like the sun shining in its strength. Go on. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Okay, this is John's understandable reaction. We've had other Bible studies about the way that the prophets and various people, when they're called, how, how they react. He falls at his feet as, as just overpowering image. You know, how... So you see the majesty, you see this overpowering majesty in these seven candlesticks and this very unusual, it's a human figure, but, it, but it's just transcendent, it's superhuman. Um, and he falls down as if he's dead. And then look at what happens right here, because this is the other part I'm talking about. This is sort of the third. So you got something intriguing, and then, whoa, you know, the awe, the overwhelming majesty. And then what? 
But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Now, isn't that amazing? Don't be afraid. See something absolutely overpowering. Image of God. I thought a moment ago this image of God had seven stars in his hand. And yet somehow, whoops, there's no stars. No, it's just me. And just touches him, right? Laid his right hand upon me. It said it was in his right hand. He had seven stars. Now he lays his right hand on him and tells him not to be afraid. And on what grounds should he not be afraid? He said, fear not. I'm the first and the last. I'm the first and the last. So don't you see a little bit? You see what I'm saying? The, the first is, oh, you know, this amazing image of this transcendent divine being. And then the last is like, no, it's just me. You know, don't, don't worry. It's just me. And just, it just touches him like that. Now, I think that, that little story, that little vignette is something that, that we go through. And I wonder whether we even cycle through it again and again. But where in the beginning of your spiritual life, then something just catches your attention and makes you turn from where you were headed. You know, you sort of, what is that? You know, you want to see what's going on. And then you start to realize, that, whoa, God is, you know, way above what I am. I just fall down as if dead in the face of this transcendent being. But then it comes right down, right away in this story and just touches him personally and, and just says, don't be afraid. I'm the first and, and the last. I'm, I'm at both, both ends of this thing. So this has to do with something that Swedenborg's writings in the older translations and the new translations talks about as the divine human. Like the, the whole idea, Swedenborg's understanding of what, who Jesus was, was that he was God himself who came down in the flesh. So he was combining, his glorification was a combining over the course of his life in this world and suffering and so on, that where he already had a divine soul, he was div the divine itself within himself, uh, but then the human part was just an ordinary human when he was a kid, uh, even though he had a divine soul. But over time, that ordinary human got sort of divinely cooked and, and turned into a divine human so that he was both divine and human, the first and the last, uh, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. He was both of those things. And so, I, and Scripture emphasizes the reason, you know, people who read Scripture from this perspective sometimes feel disturbed that there's such an emphasis in Scripture on the Father versus the Son. It sounds like two different beings and everything, and lots of people have thought that. Uh, from Swedenborg's perspective, no, it's the same. You know, there's only one God. You can't divide divinity or infinity or whatever. You know, there's only one. It's indivisible. Um, but that coming down into the flesh gave that divinity intimate access to be able to reach out and just touch one individual and say, don't, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. He is present on all levels in between. Uh, okay, let's, um, let's turn to the left and we'll go back through, uh, just to confuse you, through Acts to the Gospel of John. And uh, I just picked out a few scriptures. This is not a full story, but um, 
Look at John 15, verse 15. An amazing statement. <clears throat> Let's read 14 and 15. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I heard from my father I have made known to you. This came to mind because of that idea of the Lord saying, you know, he could just be God all by himself and say, I'm, I'm God Almighty, just worship me, and that's the beginning, the middle, and the end of it. But he says, but he calls them friends. Isn't that like that reaching out to John? You know, that's, that's what brought it to mind was the, for him to say, well, no, I, the purpose of this is for us to be friends. I, I want to have that intimacy. And part of what I'm driving at tonight is that if you just started out with the intimacy, would you really know the thunder that was under the hood? You know what I mean? That you, would, you, would you really? It makes it more astounding. You know, for John on the Isle of Patmos, when you see, you know, this amazing divine image, and then the next second he's just touching you and saying, don't be afraid, and in a personal sort of intimate way that's not, where's the big sword and, where, you know, what is all that? That's gone. Uh, that all of that divinity wants to have a personal relationship with each, each one of us. Uh, that's sort of at the heart of what we're talking about tonight. I want to look at a story about the uh, disciples. Let's go to the left and go to Matthew chapter 4. And because uh, I just saw a pattern in there of, why don't I do the flip chart right now? This is a way that I've graphed this for those of you who are seeing visuals, was that uh, I have a curvy line that goes up like a bell curve, goes way up in the middle and then comes back down on the other side for those of you who aren't getting the visuals. Uh, but when it reaches the top in the middle, there's one part that continues in the middle that, that keeps going out to the right, and the other part comes back down. And the point being, and I label number one on the left, intriguing detour. That's how it starts. Like, I heard a trumpet that sounded like a boy. I don't know what that was. And then you get taken up to point number two at the top of the curve, which I call seeing divine glory. You really behold something divine. And then you come down, and down is a feeling this intimate divine presence because you've still got that sense of the divinity in there, and yet astoundingly it actually cares about you and, and wants to pay attention to you. So that awesome figure is reaching out and touching you. So I want to look for this in the story of the disciples. Uh, let's go to Matthew 4 and just start at verse 17. This is the beginning of Jesus' uh, ministry. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mm. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So I'm drawing a parallel between this and the voice that John hears on the Isle of Patmos, the voice that he hears that says, I'm the Alpha and Omega, you know, what you see right in a book. And here's Jesus. I don't know if they know who he is or what he's doing there, but this person just on the beach says, 
follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. So there's, there's not a sense at that moment that, oh, that's a thundering divine being. You know, it's just a guy on the beach, as far as I can tell. You know what I mean? It's, it just starts, but it's pulling you in a different, it's a detour, right? It's an intriguing detour. Like, follow me. Don't keep going with the fishing thing. Come over this way and I'll make you fishers of men. You're like, what is that? I don't know what that means, but you've got my attention. So I'll, I'll come along. Oh, okay, we'll, we'll go on this ride. Okay. And what do they do? They immediately left their nets and followed him. Okay, now we turn a few chapters later to get to, you know, we don't have it in one nice, neat little story here. But look at Matthew chapter 17. Same people we were just reading about or some of the same people. Verse 1? Yes. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Okay, up on a high mountain, which I think depicts what we're talking about here, that you're, you know, okay, there was just a guy on the beach who said something interesting, and that detoured your life. But now, oh, they're going to get a different vision here, aren't they? Go on. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. Wait a minute. That's what John saw on the Isle of Patmos, was that his face was shining like the sun. This is the same kind of... So this is not how he looked when he was on the beach. No shining face. It didn't say, oh, I'm going to follow that person with a big shining face. You know, that's not... He, he just said, follow me and, you know, we'll, we'll do something interesting. And, and uh, so they follow him. But now they're getting a very different... So you see what I mean? Lifted up, boom, seeing divine glory. Face is, face is shining. And his clothes became white as the light. Mm. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Long dead figures from the Old Testament. Moses, who led the children of Israel, and Elijah, the prophet. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And in the version of this in Luke, it adds, for he knew not what he said, or something like that. Like, he's just sort of stammering something. Uh, go on. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Mm. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Okay, so a great voice. Here are some similar things in these stories. And how do the disciples react? And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. Okay, pow, same thing as John, right? Down they go, whoa, there's a huge voice in the cloud and it's just overwhelming. If that had happened on the beach, I don't know if they would have gotten on board. It had to start with something sort of intriguing that just pulled them out of their day-to-day -day life and said, here, come this way. And then whoop, da -da 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 -da. We, we trot along this way. Then, whoa, we're getting a whole divine vision here. And what's the very next thing that happens in the story? But Jesus came and touched them mm. and said, Arise and do not be afraid. Same message, don't be afraid. Touches them, same deal. Fah, amazing, awesome. oh, no, just me, just me. Don't. So uh, doesn't take away, you can't unsee the divine glory. You know, it's not like they were oh, okay, I, I guess you're not divine. You know, they saw it. I mean, they, you don't forget that. But the next minute, and it, it says they just, um, 
And, and, and what is verse 8? When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Yeah, so whoom, same kind of thing, right, as John, where it just turns into just, just one person, not this uh, amazing uh, divine vision, but just one person comes right afterwards. So I think it's got something to do with this, this intriguing detour, going up, seeing the divine glory, and then it comes down, and you feel this intimate presence, but you realize it's a div divine intimate presence that's touching you and telling you, don't be afraid, I I'm right here. Uh, very, very striking to me. Okay, uh, let's look at the Old Testament, so turn to the left. <laughs> the Lord is good. Um, yeah, yeah, let's go to Psalm 139 in the middle of your Bible. Um, let's read a little bit of this gorgeous, gorgeous psalm here, one of my favorites. Um, this is about omniscience. Let's read the first few verses there, Psalm 139. O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You have known, you know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. The psalmist is really now, I think, contemplating the divine glory, like he's saying, oh, you are omniscient. You know, you know everything. Go on. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before. And... And laid your hand upon me. Look at that. So you got the same thing again. You got the omniscience, but then you've also, you laid your hand on me. You know, so there's this magnificence and this total omniscient knowledge, but also laying a hand on. And what does it say? Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. I cannot attain it. It's just, it's too much. It's too much to try to comprehend how this divine being could have also this intimate desire to, to just be, be present with you. Um, and, uh, oh, it goes on like it's such a gorgeous thing. Um, and look at verse 17, just to skip down there. So again, this contemplation of the divine. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. Okay, so that's, again, contemplating the divine to me. It's like there's just, there's too much. There's, there's, the, the divine is so awesome, it's too much. But I love this tag phrase at the end here. When I awake, I am still with you. That to me is the intimacy. You know, it, it, again, it goes from this hugeness to this, oh, but when I awake, I'm still with you. You know, you're still with me. Um, so that was another thing that came to mind. Um, beautiful, beautiful psalm. Okay, let's turn to the left, and we'll go back through these historical works and get to the first book of Kings. We were reading in the Transfiguration about Moses and Elijah. Well, here's... A story about the aforementioned Elijah, First Kings chapter 19, and uh, it's such a great, great story. Um, he's just done something enormously powerful, 
and then he's told that someone wants to kill him and he totally falls apart and runs away into the wilderness. And, uh, and this is what happens out in the wilderness. So look at, uh, and, and in verse 8, he eats and drinks and goes on the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God, which is also Mount Sinai. So Elijah goes all the way out to Mount Sinai in the wilderness. And then what happens there at Mount Sinai? And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, it might be a bit of a stretch, but I see that. I mean, Elijah's been called a long time before this, but I see it as a little bit like that first voice that just says, you know, what are you doing here? Or something intriguing, you know, that first thing that gets your attention. Go on. So he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Mm. Okay, so first of all, there's this exchange like this, and then... Then he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. Mm. And behold, the Lord passed by, and Mm. a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. Even though it seems to be caused by the Lord passing by, it said the Lord wasn't in it, which is curious. Go on. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. Yes. And it doesn't say the Lord was in the still, small voice, but what does Elijah do when he hears it? So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he gives precisely word for word the same answer he had given before. But there's an interesting little sequence in there. Now, it's, it's not perfect, but, but the idea of just seeing this awesomeness, like the Lord passes by and then there's just all this after effect. The Lord's not in the after effect. Uh, but there's all this uh, amazingness that goes on. And then there's just this still small voice uh, that just says, what are you doing here, Elijah? So it gets back to this intimate kind of exchange, you know, going up to the divine. You can see why that would come to mind, I think. And then going down to something quite personal. All right, that was Elijah. Who was, who was the other one who was up for some transfiguration? So there was Elijah and there was another Moses. person. Who was, was that Moses? Oh, it was Moses. Okay, Moses. Let's go to the left and go all the way to the second book of the Bible, Exodus. Exodus chapter 3. Hmm. I wonder where this story is going to occur. Hmm. Let's look in Exodus chapter 3 at the beginning there. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Oh, that's the same place Elijah just what We saw Elijah, we saw Moses. Elijah went to Mount Horeb, had this experience of God. Here's Moses. He goes to Mount Horeb, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, and then what happens to him? And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. Hmm. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, 
But the bush was not consumed. Yes, this famous image of the burning bush, but it's not consumed. Then, and then Moses said, "I will now turn aside and he see." He could have said, "I will take this intriguing detour. I will now turn." You know, I was doing something with my sheep. I was going somewhere, just like the disciples who were fishing, just like John on the Isle of Patmos. I was going somewhere, but oh, I'll you know, I'll turn aside and see this weird little. It's just a weird little thing. That's how it starts. Beware of weird little things, friends. <laughs> They may have God in them, trying to get your attention. So <laughs> here's this weird little thing. Oh, that's curious. So he said, "I'm going to turn aside." You know, rather than going where I was going, I'm going to turn aside and see what this little weird, distracting little weird thing is. Go on. I will now turn aside and see this great sight. Why the bush does not burn? Yeah, so weird, so strange, fascinating. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, I really like that detail. The Lord was looking for him to see whether. Let's just see if I set the bush on fire. Whether he notices, you know, <laughs> he might not. He might have just kept walking. But when he said, "Oh, oh, okay, we've we've got a live one," you know, he's interested. Okay, good. Uh, when he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, "Moses, Moses," and he said. Here I am. Then he said, "Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy mm. ground." Mm. Moreover, he said, "I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob." And how did Moses react? And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Okay, starts with something intriguing. And then it's like, whoop! Pretty quickly, we're into something overwhelming, and he's hiding his face、uh, because it's too much. Like, whoa! A burning bush was intriguing. God of everybody, you know, all the ancestors and everything. That's a little overwhelming. But Moses hangs in there with the experience, and have a look at Exodus chapter twenty. This is more in the Moses story, and.、Um, God is thundering. He's just announced the Ten Commandments from the top of the aforementioned mountain that got his attention in the first place. And so interesting that when Moses starts talking, didn't it say like in the back? It was the sort of back side of the, like the back end of nowhere. You know, it's it's a, a way off the map.、Uh, this mountain, and、uh, so right at the end of the Ten Commandments in verse chapter twenty of Exodus, verse eighteen. We read the following. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. They're having an experience of the divine, right? They're seeing the divine glory. It's it's overpowering. Okay. Then they said to Moses, "You speak with us, <laughs> and we will hear. <laughs> But let not God speak with us, lest we die." <laughs> We're all right with you telling us things. We're not talking to whoever that is on the mountain. That's too much for us. Go on. <laughs> And Moses said to the people, "Do not fear." Oh, he said, "Do not fear." Has that been in every story we read tonight? Just about. Isn't that amazing? It says, "Do not fear."、Um, Don't be afraid. For God has come to test you. Yeah, it's just God's coming down to test you. Nothing to worry about, right? It's all right. Yeah, don't worry about that. It's just God doing a little test on you. It's all right. Okay. 
God has come to test you and that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. Yes. So the people stood afar off. Afar off. Yeah, so you can picture them sort of shuffling back or something. Right, they stand afar off. But Moses drew near, drew near the thick darkness where God was. Yes, that's right. And uh, it says in the very next verse that the Lord was to say to Moses that thus you'll say to the children of Israel, you have seen that I talk with you from heaven. Um, so interesting that Moses is going at the same time as everybody else is backing up and don't, doesn't, doesn't want to deal with it. Uh, Moses goes towards that thick darkness where, where God was. Um, look at chapter 33 in Exodus, continuing the Moses story. Um, ah. Okay, uh, 33 verse 7, let's start from there. Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp. Far from the camp. And called it the tabernacle of meeting. Ah. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. Yes, later the Lord would move right into the center of the camp, but at this point he's off at one side. Mm. So it was whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle that all the people rose and each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. Mm. And it came to pass when Moses entered the tabernacle that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle. And the Lord talked with Moses. Well, that's intimate. The Lord talks, so, so this, this mighty pillar of cloud comes down, and the Lord talks with Moses. Go on. All the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose and worshipped, each man in his tent door. Go on. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face. Face to face. As a man speaks to his friend. No longer do I call you servants. I have called you friends. Spoke to him face to face as a friend. You see what I'm talking about? Step one. Intriguing detour. Oh, what's that burning? That's weird. It's just, what an amazing sight. You know, bushes on fire. But so tiny. It's a tiny little thing. But it's enough to just attract his attention, get him off of what he was doing. Then he gets lifted up. He's on the top of the mountain, the, the thunder, the lightning, the Ten Commandments, God himself and all his glory, you know, in the thick darkness and all that. And then it's like, well, that cloudy pillar comes, comes down to his tent and just visits with him, talks with him there, face to face, like talking with a friend. Uh, see what I mean? So th this was sort of a pattern that I, that I see in Scripture. And... Uh, Although I don't think it fits very well, uh, let's go back to Genesis 28 because it was a little reminiscent of this story that doesn't fit very well. So uh, Genesis chapter 28, this is the story of Jacob, long before Moses. He was one of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in uh, 28 verse 10, you have this familiar story of Jacob's ladder. Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head 
and he lay down in that place to sleep. Now, it sort of reminds me of, I mean, John was on the Isle of Patmos, which wasn't exactly downtown anything. Uh, you know, the, the disciples were out fishing or whatever. They're, they're not downtown anywhere. Elijah went out into the middle of nowhere to Mount Horeb. Uh, Moses also out in the middle of nowhere with his sheep out to Mount Horeb. And here you've got a similar thing. Jacob's just out in the middle of nowhere and has to like improvise this little bed for himself. And what does he see there? Then he dreamed and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth. On the earth. That's where it has to start on the earth. So the ladder set up on the earth. That's that first thing we're talking about, the intriguing detour right here, down here on this earthly level. And its top reached to heaven. Mm, it goes all the way up from there. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Yes, they, they, now they weren't descending and ascending, were they, dear reader? They were ascending, ascending and, and descending. descending. Right, they're mm -hmm. going up. So he sees the angels. So it's set on the earth. They go up to God they come back down. A similar sort of shape of, of what we're talking about tonight. And many things in Scripture have this kind of shape to them. And what does the Lord say, who's above it all? And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south, and in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Yeah, he's alone out in the wilderness, <laughs> right. Go on. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. In a gentle way, I see a similar thing of like, I'm God of Abraham and Isaac and all that. Uh, but I'm also right. I'm right here with you. So this awesome God, but also very present, the divine and the human there. And Jacob reacted how? Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? Mm. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Mm. That's right, and you could certainly say that of the Ten Commandments that were given on Mount Sinai. Like, I had no idea how important that was. You know, like, I thought I was just on a mountain in the back half of nowhere, but it, it, here are these Ten Commandments. This is actually central. This is how we connect with heaven. And so uh, Jacob sets up a pillar and so on. And then, uh, you know, I don't know, it's, it's not perfect parallel, but look at Genesis chapter 32, a few chapters later, uh, starting at verse 22. This is Jacob. And again, um, Genesis 32, verse 22. And he arose that night and took his two wives. This is Jacob his two female servants and his 11 sons and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. He took them, sent them over the brook and sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, 
he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, meaning the man said, let me go for the day breaks. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So the man said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. And the man said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Now, it didn't mention that this was God he was struggling with, but, uh, and it's different than the, the sort of touching images that were in the other one. So it's not a perfect parallel, but wrestling is pretty intimate too, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, it's definitely sort of personal contact of a kind. Um, go on. Um, then Jacob asked, saying, Tell me your name, I pray. And he said, Why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Face to face. So it just seems similar, somewhat similar, the idea of God face to face. Uh, there's God in awe, and then there's God face to face. So those were the biblical stories that I wanted to read tonight. And uh, so given all that and thinking about Jesus and who he is, have a look in Luke, if you will, in the New Testament, um, the third of the Gospels there. I want to go to Luke chapter 5. Uh, Swedenborg talks at certain points in this kind of philosophical language of the difference between looking from person to essence and looking from essence to person. And he says that with, God, you, with, the, with the Lord, when you think about Jesus, you need to go from essence to persons. If you realize that divine essence is there and then start thinking about the person who is walking around in the world, you'll have a better time. If you start from the person, you may not realize the divinity that's in there. Look at uh, Luke, so thinking about the Lord, thinking about the Lord appearing to the disciples in all that divine power, and then think of this, Luke chapter 5, let's start at verse 12, shall we? And it happened when he was in a certain city... This is Jesus, yep. ...that behold, a man who was full of leprosy saw Jesus, and he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Yes, and you probably know that leprosy, you can't go near, you know, the law said you can't go near someone with leprosy. If you do, you have to wash your hands. You can't eat with anybody. You have to stay outside and stuff like, you know, there's all these things you have to do. You're not allowed to, you're not allowed to touch lepers. I mean, it's just really basic. So what does Jesus do? Then Jesus put out his hand and touched yeah, him. Yeah, he just did exactly what you're not supposed to do. He put out his hand and touched him. And so when you think about that divine, like that image of what John saw on the Isle of Patmos, and then it reaches out and touches with his hand. He touched him saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. Yes. And uh, have a look in, uh, oh, let's keep reading them. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as a testimony to them just as Moses commanded. So it worked really well to tell people not to tell anyone, doesn't it? Look at verse 15. <laughs> However, the report went around concerning him all the more. 
<laughs> and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. Yes, he touched this person and then the great number of people come. And look at chapter 6, verse 17. It's about Jesus again. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases mm. as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits and they were healed. And here it is. And the whole multitude sought to touch him. For power went out from him and healed them all. So he sought to touch the leper. In the next chapter, everybody wants to touch him. Everybody wants to touch him. Uh, so it just seems powerful when you think about who that was. You think about the God of eternity and infinity who set Orion and the Pleiades spinning in the sky, as it talks about in Job, and uh, the, the Creator who's present across all eternity, is infinite, is the same in things greatest and least, who keeps track of every single person who's able to carry flesh, as they say, into spirit without spilling a drop, who <laughs> preserves the life of every human being, who, who has mastery over all things, so infinite, so boundless, so utterly amazing. When you hold that in your mind, and then you think about that that person wants to have intimate contact with you, just very close and very present. It's, it's quite overwhelming. Uh, an analogy that came to mind was that uh, if you start out one day, uh, and uh, let's say you just suddenly came to consciousness on this planet, let's say, where we are here on planet Earth, and and um, and so you see a few trees around you, and there are some people, and you can see about my, a mile this way and half a mile that way, and so okay, okay, I think I see what this world is, and then the sun sets, and the stars come out. Let's imagine it's before light pollution or whatever, and you just see a trillion stars. And all of a sudden you realize, I am so infinitesimal. I mean, we are on this tiny pebble and the vastness goes on. I can see the edge of the Milky Way painted across the sky. And we're looking out through this edge of this enormous disk of stars against billions out to billions and billions of other galaxies in the endlessness of space. It's just overwhelming. And the next day, the sun rises up. It just warms your cheek. You know, that's what I'm talking about. That you you go from okay, yeah, here we are in a little world, and then whoa, it's vast. And then well, but it's also all about this very intimate contact. It it wants to come all the way down to us and to make contact. I've often wondered why Scripture speaks all the time about loving the neighbor, neighbor, neighbor. Like, why not say, love everybody? Why not say, love the whole human race or something? Why your neighbor? You know? But I think the Lord, you know, 
the Lord takes us out to that infinity. So you see that. You see that it's, it's infinite. There's an endless number of people, as we talked about in the Heaven Project, all these people, and they're all developing, and they're making more connections. They're all rolling into the other world. 55 million a year is growing and growing and growing. Uh, but the Lord gives us the local. Just, you know, it, he's not, he wants us to be aware of the infinity. But he doesn't want us just lying on the ground drooling and it's falling into our own ear because we're just, you know, just out of our minds. We can't function, you know. He wants us to, <laughs> I don't know where these analogies come from, but uh, he, he, he wants us to, to feel that intimacy as well, the small context. So just, you know, the, everybody on this planet, we're just the class of whatever, you know, the class of the... 21st century, we're all going through together. It's amazing to me that, that Swedenborg emphasizes that when he went to the spiritual world, he saw every, everybody, every single person he had ever known in his entire life who had passed on to the other world, he saw them and he talked with them. Some for whole days, some for whole months, some for a whole year. Uh, like, this is your class, this is your little group. The Lord doesn't want to overwhelm us with an infinity of people. You can never get to know them all, you know. Just deal with these homies right here, you know. Just, just deal with your, with your group right here. Get to know these people. Uh, just, just love, you know, learn how to love your neighbor, uh, you know. And by extension, yes, Swedenborg says, Everyone is the neighbor who is to be loved. You know, everybody is. It extends to everybody. But I think that's why it emphasizes the neighbor. This uh, topic tonight also gives me some light on something. I don't know whether you've ever read this in Swedenborg's True Christianity, but toward the end he's got this striking image that he says, having faith in an invisible God is like, I don't have it memorized, but it's like looking out over the, the up, up into the sky or out over the ocean and your eye just goes and goes and, and never stops. It doesn't, you know, there's nothing you can fix onto. That's what believing in an invisible God is like. And uh, when I thought about that a lot when I was translating that passage, I thought, um, it's not that you see nothing. It's that you see everything. It's, you know, it's overwhelming. You know, you just see this, it's like the night sky. It's just this infinity and it, it's overwhelming. Uh, but that is not the end game for the Lord, is just to have us overwhelmed. It says believing in a visible God is like looking out into the air or over the sea and seeing a figure with arms outstretched inviting all into his embrace. You know, that's the intimate part, the, the touching you part, you know, that that infinity is infinite enough that it can be fully present with you and just wants to make this, this intimate um, contact. Um, and I, I, I would uh, say that I think this is kind of a cycle, like it's one of those, is it M.C. Escher, you know, those drawings where you can't really see both sides of it, it's like the vase and the two faces. So you switch back and your consciousness can't really hold both, you know, at the same time. I imagine that even though these stories have just sort of one sort of bang, you see the infinity, you come down, you get touched by God or something. Uh, I imagine we cycle through this, don't you think? 
like I imagine we go back and forth between that, that intimate sense of God being present in your life and then, whoa, back to the awesome, you know, glory and back to the intimacy like the day and the night, you know, uh, going back and forth. Another analogy that had come to mind about this was uh, parenting. I, I don't know, uh, this may be a half-formed thought. It wouldn't be the first time you've heard one from me, good friends. Um, but it's striking, isn't it, that when, with little kids, uh, you know, their parent just like uh, fills their world. You know, you, like the parent is like this godlike figure as the power of life and death and, you know, just fills their world. And then as the kid grows up, you realize, oh, wait, my, my parents are just one of many, many, you know, there's a lot of people in, in this world and they're actually kind of, flawed and irritating in fascinating ways and or whatever you know and and uh, uh, and and it spreads out uh, but then it can um, come back again to some kind of an uh, intimate relationship um, uh, anyway I was just playing around with different analogies but I like the sun by day and the clear sky by night and then the sun coming and touching us the Lord wants to have that friendship. I've not called you servants, I've called you friends. He wants this intimacy with us. And the more we realize who that is that's asking for that, uh, when you see the divine part of the divine human, it's really amazing that that hand just reaches out and says, fear not. So I close by saying to, to, to contemplate the qualities of God is mind-boggling, but then also to realize God's intimate presence and care for us individually is also astounding. Thank you, good friends. Thank you for joining us. Let's close with a prayer, shall we? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we can hardly imagine what it must have been like for you to go on that journey from being a, a relatively normal but gifted child on the outside and then finding more and more of this awe of the infinity that was within you and bringing that all the way down into every corner of your being until your body disappeared entirely from the tomb and was all subsumed, all divine, all uncreate. And it's hard for us to fathom, Lord, but the fact that you did that in order to be intimately present with each one of us, to just be present with us. It's useful sometimes to realize the awesome, awesomeness of you, your infinity, your eternity, but then to come back home to the intimacy with you and your care for us. Our Father, who art in the heavens, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven so upon the earth. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, 
but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. It all begins with repenting, friends. <laughs> Amen.